Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, the unique program where we have conversations through worldview, all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 1.25. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and today I have a special guest with me, Dr. Jeffrey Ventrella, who serves as Senior Counsel and Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs and Training. He obtained his BME degree, magna cum laude, from the University of Northern Colorado, where he specialized in trumpet performance. Dr. Ventrell received a PhD in church and state studies from Whitfield Theological Seminary and earned his Juris Doctor from the University of California Hastings College of the Law. He is admitted to the State Bar of Idaho, the U.S. Supreme Court, and multiple federal district and appellate courts. He also serves as chairman for the Truth Exchange Board of Directors and is a senior teaching fellow for Truth Exchange. You can find some of his lectures on the Truth Exchange website. Two of my favorites are You Can't Not Legislate Morality and The Beauty of Two as it relates to the reality of law. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, how you doing? Glad to be here, Joshua. Jeff, are you still playing trumpet? You know, I, sadly, I am not. I, I, I am in my mind, but that's... <laughs> There's just too many things going on. So, Top three trumpet players. Well, the three that changed the nature of trumpet playing were all in the 20th century, and they would be, number one, Mr. Herseff, the principal of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Uh, number two, Maurice Andre, the great soloist, who began to help us understand how to play Baroque and smaller trumpets. And then number three would be Maynard Ferguson, the great jazz player, uh, who really taught us how to do velocity playing and to enjoy what we're doing. And is jazz jazz your your particular favorite type of, of trumpet music? It certainly it dominates my uh, preferences. But I was trained in in all sorts of things. In fact, when I was studying for the bar, I actually was on a sub sub list. And uh, when the local university would do musicals and needed a trumpet player, I played everything from Gilbert and Sullivan to uh, Evita to uh, you name it. I did it. So it was really fun. That's excellent. We have an online symposium scheduled for spring of 2021, the state of our disunion. Dr. Jones framed the symposium with this question, how should Christians articulate the deep truths of the gospel in today's caustic and hostile culture? Like never before, we are facing massive divisions within the culture and within the church. We're divided over how churches and beyond that, uh, businesses, schools should function during COVID-19. We're divided to some extent over identity and sexuality. And we're divided over issues of race and social justice. We're divided over issues of how Christians should vote. We're going to really camp on that one today. The divisions that th- these, these divisions threaten the charity and unity we knew in the past, which now provokes serious disunity and even expressions of sin. Such divisions go deep and threaten the state of biblical orthodoxy for years to come. Jeff, 21 days until the election, uh, 15 by the time this podcast is aired. Uh, I've seen numbers of articles on why you should vote for one candidate, some of it having to do on issues of pro-life. I see a number of articles from Christians and unchristians alike say, let's be done with the culture wars, Christians be quiet recede into the night. Let's start with this. Should Christians be concerned with politics? And if so, why? 
it's an important question and it's unfortunate we have to even ask it because there has been a lot of uh, people saying that we ought to retreat, that politics is dirty, that uh, politics is somehow problematic. Well, one reason I submit that politics can be dirty is because Christians and people of virtue have not been involved in the political uh, spheres. I'm not talking about some hack-eyed partisanship, but I'm saying is we do need to be involved because politics are it's certainly better than dueling. And what we need to be understanding is if we want an ordered society, there's a mechanism for doing that. In the United States of America, we have a structure that was uh, influenced and in many ways encased Christian ideas. Not that the United States was a Christian nation, I don't believe it ever was, but it certainly was founded as a Christian nation in the sense that certain Christian ideas formed the predicate for how the politics and the law was built out. For example, the separation of powers indicates that the concentration of powers was deemed problematic because of the fallen nature of mankind. The notion of dual federalisms between the federalist uh, state and the separation of powers horizontally tells us that there needs to be a slowing down, a cluttering, if you will, so again, power wouldn't amass. As Christians, we understand that Satan is a consolidator of power. He wants to concentrate power. We saw this at the Tower of Babel. However, as Christians, we know that God does the opposite. God is a delegator of power. And so we see a number of Christian streams of thought, not 100%, of course, but going into the structure. So I think the first thing we need to understand about politics, it, it is world affirming. And we are called to not be of the world, but to be in the world. And that's part of the world. Second of all, we need to be grateful that we have the opportunity um, to engage, to debate, to criticize those in the state and so on and so forth. And then I think number three, we need to recognize that the Bible directly addresses these kinds of issues. It addresses it in a number of ways. One is Jesus is our Lord. Lord is a political category. So it tells us immediately that the notion of an ordered society, of law, of ethics, and of engaging uh, uh, publicly is part and parcel of what uh, Christ is engaged in doing. So he's the Lord. Then, of course, we have Jesus coming and talking to us and saying, look, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, mm -hmm. which is two things. One is that the political realm or sphere is legitimate and it also has uh, delimited margins. It has particular tasks. Well, what are those tasks? The Apostle Paul picks up on this and tells us, for example, in Romans 13, that the civil magistrate is not some neutral entity at all. Rather, it is established by God as his minister, the same word we have for deacon, diakonos. It's a minister of God. To do what? To establish justice. Now, there's a lot of different versions and flabbiness out there is what comprises justice, but we understand in the context that it's justice which is essentially a transcript of God, his righteousness, and so forth. Interestingly, in the nature of the case, um, the Apostle Paul is very helpful in 1 Timothy 1, where he talks about that the law is not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And he outlines a number of categories of things that we ought not to tolerate within the society. Importantly, 
he does not say that all sins should be crime or all sins should be regulated. So there's this distinction even in the mind of Paul, which makes sense. That's the Older Testament, which tells us that, you know, Aaron is not Moses. So there's a clear separation of the institute church and of the political order, but neither of which is neutral. And then the next thing I would say is with respect to the founding is it was designed consistent with the early Christian principle for human flourishing, to allow freedom predicated upon the imago Dei, to allow dissent. In fact, it was the Christians who spoke against and ultimately got rid of things like infanticide, infant exposure, gladiatorial combat, mm -hmm. sorts of things, slavery. It was the Christian ideas. They began talking about it. They confronted the, the state that had those things, and they ultimately repealed those kinds of ideas. And then in the law, some people got zealous and wanted to coerce conversions. Some religions still do that today mm -hmm. uh, in the Mideast. That's not the Christian position. Yeah. And it was codified by the Justinian Code. Justinian Code forbade the ill treatment and coercive treatment of both pagans, that is to say unbelievers, as well as Jews. Granted, the medieval church overstepped its bounds and got confused and did some, some poor things, some wrong things, but that's not the original Christian position. And following the Reformation Enlightenment, these ideas got revivified, and consequently, we have Christian uh, streams of thinking that provides things that protect what we call pre-political rights, and those are derived from the very image and likeness of God. That was a long uh, way, but I'm excited about these things. Yeah, it's super helpful. You know, I was just listening to a podcast the other day about the American American Revolution and that it was a Presbyterian war and that the Presbyterians had a huge hand in, in the creating the structure for our, our government that we enjoy today. Jeff, you mentioned a couple things that I'd like to go back and touch on. You, you mentioned about how Satan is a consolidator of powers, whereas God s separates it out. What about, there's there's some branches of, of evangelicalism that would say, well, there's the sacred realm, there's a common realm. And the church deals with the ch things that are important to the church, the sacraments, the preaching of the gospel, whereas then the government has its own thing. So the church does not need to speak to the common realm at all. It has nothing to say about the common realm. How would you respond to that? Yeah, the way that's used today, it's, sometimes it's called sacred secular or sacred common, I think, it, I think it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the Lordship of Christ. This is our Father's world. He's not done with it. In fact, he came to redeem that very world, not just individual souls or individual persons, but the entire mechanism. And in doing that redemption, Paul tells us that he redeemed us from all lawlessness, not just in the church, this is Titus 2, all lawlessness, why? So that we, the redeemed, might be a people zealous for good works. The passage I alluded to earlier when Paul sets forth ethical mandates, it's very interesting. They're not just for the church. He talks about slave trading. He talks about um, adultery. He talks about things that disrupt the order of society in terms of sexual practices and behaviors. That's not just to, quote, purify the church. Rather, that's to produce an ordered society that thereby promotes human flourishing. The founders of the United States understood this because they understood that we need to have a, they, they called it republicanism. That has nothing to do with political parties. 
it had to do with number one, consent of the governs through representation and the promotion of virtue. The nation was not to be neutral with respect to ethical constructs. Well, in the same way, that's echoing a Christian notion that it is all sacred. Typically, what that, that dichotomy is, is trying to say that the church, uh, that, the, that Christianity has nothing to say into the realm, that it's somehow neutral, and that's just simply not the case. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Jesus said, um, if you, uh, you can't serve two masters. So we have to take our North Star uh, from uh, who Christ is in an appropriate interpretive way and then speak into that's what we're called to do. And we see that certainly early on in the book of Acts and thereafter in the uh, epistles and so forth. And the church certainly understood this and took their, when they got their feet under them, those orders to proclaim. Now, the church doesn't impose anything, nor should it. It does propose. And as it proposes, it equips the saints for the work of ministry, which includes all the realms of the created order. Mm. And so uh, it is a lordship issue. Uh, when I, in my more cynical moments, Joshua, I think that some of these uh, theological categories are designed to uh, justify our non-engagement. And I think that's a real strat uh, tragedy to do that. Partly, mm -hmm. let's understand when we use the word secular, it just simply meant the present present era as opposed to the eternal era. It, it didn't say we weren't to be involved in the secular. It was just distinguishing that this is here and now versus that which is eternal. So whether you look at it historically or theologically, it is a mistake in my view to suggest we ought to have anything to do with the uh, public square, with civic society, and of course with politics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the you'll see that they will argue, they being some theologians on this particular wing, will say, well, Scripture doesn't speak about how Christians should engage in politics. I mean, they go, they'll pull out the Romans 13, the first Peter, and they'll say, see, Paul or the Apostle Peter were saying, you need to simply submit to the authorities and powers that be, and that's it. Your job is to be a pilgrim in this life and focus on the church, focus on spiritual things, where I guess natural and flesh is bad. Yeah, that's an implicit Gnostic thing that Dr. Jones has shown us because the idea, the most, the most um, corrupt being ever to exist is purely spiritual, mm -hmm. and that's Satan. Um, so we have to be very careful with thinking that spirituality equals ethical good uh, and that's, or benefit. Uh, I think that's uh, a great mistake to conflate those two kinds of things. The notion that um, we simply... Well, we don't see it in Scripture, first of all. So by example, we must obey God rather than men. The very first speech code that came into existence was in Acts chapter 5, where they forbade uh, Peter and James from speaking in the name of Jesus. And they resisted that. We also see the Apostle Paul later appealing to the civil courts, going public, vindicating the rights he had, not only as a Christian, but as a citizen. In other mm -hmm. words, forced it is citizenship claims all for the purpose uh, of the gospel as well. And let's see, something else you said about that that triggered a memory, which I've quickly forgotten. But it was, it was about this notion of, well, it doesn't, oh, it doesn't tell us how to do it. The problem with that sort of blanket statement is it, it, it presupposes a moral equivalency argument. 
Like no matter what the state does, it doesn't tell us how to do it. But that's just not the case. If, if someone says, I love children, I'd like to adopt more. We could create mechanisms and structures to allow for less uh, burdensome while protecting children, the notion of adoption. But if someone says, I love children, they're delicious, I have a right to eat children, say Moloch worship or something, we'd say, oh, no, no. And you're saying that these people are saying the church shouldn't speak into that, shouldn't oppose legislation that, God forbid, would, would allow for cannibalism of young children. Well, that seems hypothetical, but it, the principle still holds. And so I think we have to be very careful about blanket statements or uh, semi-sophisticated statements say, well, it doesn't tell us how to engage. Well, that may be true. It may not be true. But this much I do know. Um, we should never promote publicly as a policy that which God condemns scripturally. Mm. So when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of voting, a Christian ought not to advance as public policy that which God condemns scripturally. So let's, well, let's, 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 let's put some flesh on that. There is, a, there is the issue of abortion. So, and that's where the blogosphere has been, just been exploding. Social media is exploding on this issue. Don't vote for this man because he is for abortion. Well, there's been some evangelicals who have come out and said, well, I can vote for this man because he has other policies that while he may vote for and be for infanticide, he's got other things in play that if will help mothers choose better be well financially stable, be able to take care of their children, their children can get a better education. So the, the cradle to the grave mantra is huge. Yeah, I think a couple things there. One is the state's not our savior, Jesus is. And so I think it interferes with the actual job description of the state. But more fundamentally, philosophically, someone who makes that kind of claim tends to blur the distinction between intrinsic evils mm. and contingent evils. An intrinsic evil would be that which is, for example, anti-creational. You know, opposing life is anti-creational. Um, redefining marriage legally can't be redefined metaphysically, but redefining it legally is contra-creational. Right. Uh, blurring the metaphysical distinction between males and females claiming there's other kinds of sexes is contra-creational. Those are bedrock pre-political norms embedded in the created order as declared by the very word of God, let there be, so on and so forth, versus um, contingent evils, which could be, oh, um, the Bible doesn't tell us uh, how much uh, uh, a tax rate should be, uh, so this party is going to give us a 65%, and the other party is going to give us a 90%. Well, I would oppose both of those as being onerous, but if you had a choice, you would say, well, only taxes 65% on our income. That way we would have more uh, discretionary to be charitable and so on and so forth. My point being is you can't in advance just looking at a particular policy that's generally articulated, really evaluate it with respect to contingent evils, or which means they may or may not be evil in the means of effectuating policy. However, with inherent evils, you know outside the box. You cannot affirm that which God condemns. It's very interesting in Ezekiel, the prophet says, these people have profaned me. Mm. And 
You ask me how you've been profaned. And it says you've, you killed those who should be, who be kept alive and you've put to death. No, you put to death those who should be kept alive and, you, and you've kept alive those who should be put to death. Very interesting. So there you have the capital punishment abortion uh, paradigm in one verse uh, dealing with that. And that is called a profanation of God. And I think the answer is very simple because it impacts God's justice. We don't take innocent life uh, intentionally. And you, in justice, uh, the Noahic covenant, it's interesting, some of these people want to think we're going to be Noahide. Well, guess what? The Noahic covenant says, by when man sheds blood, so his blood shall be shed of him. So both of those, I think, are there. And so I think there's some, um, well, it's, it's, I know what, the, what you're referring to. My first public debate was in 1986 and is with a gentleman named Ron Sider, professor at Eastern, now he's retired there. And he was going around in uh, semi-conservative states and endorsing those on the left, calling it, it's the just life. Is it just life? Well, what I've seen here, for example, when this evangelical group got together, these are the same people. They're all the same people. They just have either a lot less hair or a lot more gray hair. And they've never voted uh, the right side of center, I don't think, in their lives. And this is just a mechanism to continue to, I think, um, uproot some things. And again, not to be partisan, because I have my own opinions on that as well. But I think from a theological and a philosophical standpoint, that's a very troubling position to take. I don't think it'd be justified. For the church informing Christians, we've, we've covered that slightly. Um, how, can, how do pastors, how should a pastor go about this? I was talking to a young man the other day, and, and he says, you know, pastors spend a number of years in seminary for training for, for the work that they're called to do. It, w- it would be foolish for them then to detour from that and to spend time and in, in go to take jurisprudence or, or to be informed, to just spend hours and hours upon following political commentaries. What should a pastor do to become informed on these issues so that when these issues come up, which they are here in front of us daily now, to, to speak to their congregation about these issues? Well, you may not, as a pastor, you may not want the culture war, but the culture war wants you because your congregants are going to be inundated with these things. Uh, even the homeschoolers, given the internet and the media and all these kinds of things, it will be a factor. And to shepherd effectively, you need to be informed. Moreover, uh, even if you spent time in seminary, if you spent time in seminary learning theology and the scriptures, you can't not uh, be impacted by the public uh, uh, facing nature of, of the claims of Christ. It's all about going into the world. It's all about proclaiming justice. In fact, Jesus says in his longest sermonic material, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The same word justice. So it presupposes a standard there with respect to that. And it's interesting in that same context, he calls this metaphor salt and light, not in the church, but in the world. And then he explains those metaphors by saying, look, and by saying this, don't think I came to abolish the law of God. He didn't come to abolish it, but to confirm it, to, to set it forth. And so he tells us that there is salt and light, that there's an ethical dimension to the salt and light, that it is to be evident, that it is to be seen, and it follows the ethical parameters of the very law of God. 
And then he says, by the way, your priority, uh, and, and I verified this with Peter, the New Testament scholar, that the first there in that context, protos root is one of sequence. No, it's one of priority. Mm. Priority to seek first the kingdom and his justice. And so when someone says, oh, it's just about the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, Savior seems to have a different set of priorities there. And those priorities are about going out. Mm -hmm. I think is the metaphor, and this is all it is, the metaphor, is that the church itself ought not to be a, conceived of as a bomb shelter. Rather, the church should be an ammunition depot that equips individuals to go out and to uh, bring righteousness and justice and so forth. Again, not in a coercive manner, but as light and as salt. And to the extent that Christians hold positions that are political and can influence policy, they ought to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, they ought to do that. What kind of ways can the church be salt and light to the government? Just recently, at the last General Synod for the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterians, they wrote to the president, to the Supreme Court, to the Senate, and to Congress, and they they made a proclamation that you are to be servants of God and that you need to um, fight for life and that that marriage is between a man and a woman. And I remember when that happened, I had gotten that news about the Synod making those, those letters and that statement, theological statement. I tweeted that out and somebody came back out at me and said, well, what good did that do? But it's being salt and light in a dark time. The darkness was everywhere, but now there's a light. Jeff, what are other ways that the church could be salt and light to the government? I think that there was, I think it's, it's, you can be creative as, as the day is long. You could have a committee that's for Christ and culture. Again, not a partisan hack group but to really get informed that you delegate and you have people that this is their, their bread and butter and they go and get a hold of the issues and begin to deal with it. Why? So they can pray about it. We're to honor those in authority. We're to pray for those in authority, but we're not to talk to them in authority. We're not to urge them in authority. No, of course we are. And so we ought to do that. So you could have a committee of Christ and culture. Uh, you could, uh, a band together with other uh, groups. We have, as a part of us, a church alliance ministry, which is a minimal uh, expense that congregations can join to help be protected. So from a defensive standpoint, their bylaws and all those kinds of things, to be protected against encroachments upon religious liberty, and also then to be informed of the areas that are coming and knocking at the door. So I think being informed is part of that. I think also that in addition to the proclamation, we need to have an incarnation of what we believe. Mm. So, for example, um, being able to go and uh, minister to those who may or may not be Christians, but who need food, who need clothing. What about adopting a, uh, oh, I don't know what they call them where you are, but Title I schools, which are in poor neighborhoods and, and have a lot of at-risk kids. What about uh, getting engaged with them and and donating maybe needed computer gear uh, to them or clothing to the students or helping them with Thanksgiving, being demonstrable out there simply because we're Christians and they are made in, in the image and likeness of God. No strings, no attachments to demonstrate that we have a community of conviction and of love. 
not to be able to do that. So I think that goes along with, you know, volunteering in, in shelters and rescue sessions and that sort of thing. So I think dealing with the symptoms of an unjust world are important. Then I think, and this is where we've missed the ballpark, we need to deal with also the systems. Mm. We need to be engaged upstream from the symptoms so that we're not just dealing with, well, Fred's hungry yet again. You know, I'm mindful of the verse that says, if you know, a person won't work, they shall not eat. Mere gifting only creates dependence. And so we need to be training and discipling and developing that. And then going into those corridors of a societal power and speaking what's true in, a, in an appropriate way, not some take it or leave it, black and white, you're going to hell if you don't vote this way. Mm -hmm. Understanding the nature of things. Political uh, politics practiced is a very incremental sort of thing. There's a lot of trade-offs. And so there are a number of good policy groups that come from a uh, Christian orientation that can help us do that well and, and not, not be, you know, frankly, we embarrass ourselves uh, as, you know, dumb fundamentalist Bible thumper kinds of things. Look, the Apostle Paul, when he was in court before Festus, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking to you true and rational words. We've got to get our chops together to be able to speak true and rational words to magistrates like Festus mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Do we know our senators? Do we know our representatives? Do we know where they stand? Are we going to hold them accountable? Uh, all those kinds of things in an appropriate way. Uh, my view of the White House and every other house underneath it is when they do good things, praise them. When they do uh, mistaken things, call them out and help them to improve. And that's going to be true whether or not I voted for the person holding that office. I think that we have an obligation first to Christ, which means that we need to be informed on what are the standards that ought to be uh, dealt with and employed. And we need to do so. And I'm just talking to you as my friend, but uh, we need to do so in a very civil way, a very winsome way, uh, in a way that commends knowledge and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then our, one of our spiritual fathers, I never had the privilege of meeting him, he passed uh, really when I started studying was Dr. Van Til, always in a position to buy the next cup of coffee. He was always in a position to buy the next cup of coffee and he could be, you know, kind of hardcore and, and very much rebut people, but he was always postured to buy that next cup of coffee. Why don't we do that? Why mm -hmm. don't we a coffee shop? Why don't we, you know, where we can just have dialogue, no agenda other than we are salt, we are light. And then we move on from there. But I do like the idea of having dedicated, delegated, dedicated people uh, to being informed on this issue that can then advise the session uh, with respect to things. You know, we've got mega churches where I live in the Valley that won't allow the distribution of impartial voter guides. I think that's a scandal because we don't want to get involved in politics. Well, guess what? Politics is going to get involved in you. Mm -hmm. You know, people to vote for or against the uh, legalization of marijuana take one example, uh, about uh, uh, whether or not public accommodations are going to coerce Christian business owners to uh, do certain things. Seems to me that's relevant to your, your congregants. Yeah. I, I love this principle, Jeff, in just our conversation, and, and we'll be wrapping up here soon. But the, the principle of human flourishing, and I just, it, to me, that is what is, is, is resounding is one, it is is the Imago Dei, as, as you said earlier. It's a care for um, our posterity. 
it's a care for even it's the fifth commandment. It's caring for those our our mother and father, but those in authority over us. Uh, you had said earlier in this podcast, and also recently in your recent contribution to the website, "Law and Public Policy: Not a Gospel Issue." The politics per se cannot possibly be dirty because Christ himself holds a political office from which all earthly authority derives. He is Lord. How should Christians respond when governments, law, public policy, excuse me, public policy do not go as we believe it should go? Um, or candidates don't uh, are not morally in uh, in a state of morality that we would like them to be what should we do is that a, is that a deal breaker in voting or um is it more like a game of chess yeah those, those are important questions and you know i've had to think about that a little bit uh, a lot actually in the recent decades uh, the, the question is this um you know i think even luther framed that i'd rather have a competent politician than an incompetent christian politician i'm paraphrasing there and there's some merit to what he uh, suggests there. And so the question comes is, um, when we have an incumbent, for example, we have a decided record to discern. And that record, though not 100% uh, predictive, gives us an idea of how that office bearer discharges the duties associated with that office. And so I'm mindful of uh, the parable that Jesus tells uh, of which son did the bidding of the father? Mm. Was it the one that said, yes, dad, yes, dad, and then didn't do anything? Or the one who was just really harsh and had a bad attitude, you might say a bad character, but discharged the duties for which was handed to him? I think that's relevant. I also think it's relevant uh, if you have an office bearer um, that already holds office is different than a candidate. It's different than a candidate. I think a third factor is uh, that uh, even despite character deficits, um, it is always righteous to oppose evil. So in other words, you could in a situation where you don't really like the incumbent or the incumbent has glaring character, pro character problems, but the platform uh, of the opponent is so anti-Christian that you can oppose that with your funding and any other ways, that doesn't necessarily mean you support the other. So you're not materially cooperating with evil, which I don't think you know, uh, that would be in that case. But if that's where their conscience is pricked, I think there's a question with respect to that. So all that to say is, uh, what is, you know, you're not, I think someone said, you know, an election's not a Valentine. You're, you're not you love this person. Okay, that's a bit simplistic too, but there's a, there's a germ of truth to that. Mm. What we're talking about is participating in the consent of the government, making your voice known with respect to things. If, uh, which I believe in this case, there's uh, one entity that has taken as part of the official position, anti-Christian positions. In other words, proposing abortion, proposing the funding of abortion, proposing the coercion of money from uh, pro-life people to fund abortion, uh, proposing to make a distinction, or I should say an obliteration of the distinction, this is the oneist and twoist piece, uh, between maleness and femaleness, between marriage as one man and one woman. Those are all creational norms. And politics are, this is where we stand and we will implement accordingly. That's not a mechanism of, well, how are we going to get the policy things? We know the ends 
to which they're doing, the means become irrelevant at that point. If two parties have the same end, then we can debate the politics of the means, and character may come into play there. But if you have as stated policies that which are anti-Christian, then the character to me seems to diminish on the person who opposes those things that are anti-Christian. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. That's that's how I look at it anyway. Here's a rapid fire question. Okay. Third party option. Is that is that a way forward or is that a is that a, a wasted vote? I think is that a question about football, which I don't really follow? No. <laughs> option? <laughs> Run pass option. Oh, you're talking about should you vote for third party candidates. Yeah. Um that that's I think it's complicated that way. Um, it can be a mechanism of saying, you know, I just don't want to be involved, and so I'm going to I'm going to cast a vote for someone who clearly will lose, and then I'm going to say I told you so. You know, it's kind of posturing. But I will tell you, at one point, as you know, I came from the state of Idaho, which is a very red state. You know, 70% probably Republican voting, and what happened was there was such a proliferation of Republicans that began to become big British Republicans bigger than britches, not really listening. They had all the power. And so I talked to a number of these people. In fact, one of the guys, he held state office, but he's a U.S. Senator right now. And I said, look, you know, this is really a problem here. And, and you're, you're not being responsive and all these kinds of things. So uh, what I did, I thought, the, I thought the Republican Party had gotten uh, drunk on itself and so forth. So I very publicly became statewide um, chaplain for a third party presidential candidate resigned uh, what I was doing so that I could articulate my criticisms from a platform of legitimacy onto that. And there was actually some reform. Now, of course, the third party candidate was just you know, terribly destroyed, but I knew that the electoral votes of that state were clearly gonna go to, a, to the Republican and thereby oppose abortion on demand and all those kinds of things. So it seems to me that what the voter should do is to think through uh, is this a close election? Uh, is is my state going to be key? Because if it is key, when you elect a president, for example, you are electing um, the ability to appoint about 6,000 uh, appointments, as well as any open judgeships. And so you're not simply electing a person, you're electing a system and a platform, and you're electing the ability to create uh, personnel, which becomes policy. And we're seeing great strides in that. And, and I've publicly uh, distanced myself from, the, from some of the character and behavior of our current occupant of the White House. But the record of that administration is really, in my lifetime, kind of second to none on those things I hold here. And so that's the calculus. And so you have to look at, is third party, what's the purpose of it? Is it just to protect yourself and say, I wash my hands? Is it to send a message because you're someone significant, as I kind of was? when I was in Idaho, or is there a way to um, articulate that in a way that makes it clear you are still opposing um, those, you know, situation that's problematic? Um, I, let me just say, too, uh, some of the rhetoric out there, Joshua, and I've seen it in this evangelicals group, um, is, well, you know, you shouldn't be a single-issue voter. That's nonsense. Uh, uh, single issues can be dispositive. If there was a candidate out there and says, I believe that Bribery should be legal. And so to the highest bidder, you got my vote and policy. You would say that person is categorically disqualified. Yeah. If someone said that I believe in child sacrifice should be legal, you say, no, nope, 
they're good on everything else, but I'll just hold my nose and vote for the child sacrifice guy or the incest guy. Clearly, everyone's going to have a line of non-neutrality and single issues. So it is a red herring to say, ah, I'm not going to vote for a single issue. Nonsense. Mm-hmm. And where do we make that calculus? Well, you might think about going to the creational norms, the very word of God. Those things which he says are abominable versus those things he says are the predicate for human flourishing because you're made in my likeness and image. Like the streams and the air was teeming with life, he calls humans to order their affairs under God so that we too team with life, to have dominion. And that's not a harsh thing. That's a good thing. It's called culture making. And that's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. And when we vote contra creational norms, we are voting contra human flourishing. That's really good, Jeff. Thank you. Now, last question. We'll wrap it up. For our high school and college listeners, uh, those going into college, what, what organizations can they start to look into so that they can become active salt and light in this world? Organizations, and I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of, jo- of, uh, of Joe, Joe Boot up in, in Toronto, but I'm also thinking of the folks over at ADF. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that we've got to have formation before we can have reformation. And I mean that culturally. And, and so I think they need to be informed. They need to be reading the right things. I think they need to be looking at the truth exchange materials. I think that something like Public Discourse, which is a very good online journal, articulates a lot of these policies at a sophisticated level. Uh, I, I think uh, reading you know, monographs and stuff, the Center for Cultural Leadership, Andrew Sandlin's uh, publishes a number of key things that, yeah. that inform us. And then I will simply say that uh, we have programs, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom for College-Age Students, programs that are designed for those heading into law school, for pre-law, those who are designed to uh, going into journalism, something we desperately need, those who are going into uh, entrepreneurship and business, and lastly, those who are engaged as Capitol Hill uh, people. So as they begin to uh, sense a calling and want to think about those, those four areas, we have the, those kinds of trainings, which are all provided you know, free of cost as well. That's just our, our policy. So we can begin to equip and identify those people so that we can get people uh, engaged. And you know, uh, notice I didn't say anything about joining partisan politics. Mm-hmm. I think we need to apply what is true and then that works its way out in uh, partisan politics in those kinds of areas. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the program. This concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange Podcast, the unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line, let us know how you think we're doing, or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.